morning, friends. I haven't said it in a while, so it bears saying again, but if you are paying attention, you've already experienced and heard the gospel before I even get up here to preach, right? Uh, thank you as a pastor. Pastors don't say this enough, but just listening to you guys worship God is just an encouragement to my soul. Um, just hearing Greg and the team and the songs and Krista and her joy, she's like that all the time. Uh, I've known her before she was married. I've, I've known her as a married woman. Now I know her as a married woman who's a mother, and that's how she is all the time. What joy, and Hunter, thank you for leading us in such a wonderful prayer to make us really think about things that matter and prepare us for the preaching of God's word, brother. Thank you for doing that. Um, if you have a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 10. There's a part of me that's tempted to just call the service quits now because I just, it was so good. But um, I actually did study, so I have a sermon, but it was a good morning so far. It's only going to get better, I pray. Romans chapter 10. Now, if you need a, uh, to use a Bible and you don't have one, grab the, the pew Bible in front of you. Per, turn to page 889, Romans chapter 10, page 889 in our pew Bible. If you weren't here last week, we talked about Romans 9 and introduced this fantastic yet somewhat perplexing doctrine of the sovereignty of God, and particularly the way we saw that play itself out last week was in God's sovereign choice of His people. In other words, God has the right and has always exercised His prerogative as God to choose, whether that was Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Pharaoh over Moses, Jews over the Gentiles. He chooses. He is the potter. Humanity is the clay. As God, he can and will do all that he pleases, which is probably why we often want to be God ourselves, right? We want to be able to choose without any, having to answer to anyone, right? But that is not our prerogative to choose. Ultimately, that is only God's. The whole conversation, you recall, came about because in the church at Rome, there were many Jewish Christians, in other words, Jews, who had realized that Jesus was the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. In fact, a little history here, prior to AD 70, most of the church comprised of Jew, Jewish Christians who had converted to recognizing Jesus was the Messiah. Now, to be clear, Gentiles in mass were coming into the church. We made that clear. We see that in the New Testament. But by and large, there was a huge Jewish component to the early church, which is why most of the New Testament letters are wrestling with the transition from Judaism to, to a faith that includes all people in all places and all times. But there were those Jews in the church Lots of them. But even though there were many of them, the overwhelming majority of the Jewish nation did not believe in Christ as the Messiah and rejected the gospel. So in, in Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul is pausing from his explanation of the gospel to, to his application of the gospel, and he's pausing 9, 10, and 11 to explain this phenomenon. In chapter 9, if you remember, Paul's answer it was basically God's sovereign choice. In chapter 10, Paul offers us the flip side of that coin and talks about human responsibility. John Stott, the uh, British theologian, brilliant man, says, if you look at it this way, chapter 9, we learn about Israel's failure, and in chapter 10, we realize that it's actually Israel's fault. 
Another way to think of it is in chapter 9, we read of and learn of the sovereignty of God and his choice of some, while in chapter 10, we hear of the salvation of God offered to all. And again, while the presenting issue, the presenting context is clothed in a context that's very foreign to our day-to-day lives, right? The, the nation of Israel rejecting Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. I'm sure nobody this week was really key, lost any sleep of why that is still taking place. But the underlying question is very practical and real to us today. Why do people remain in unbelief? So while the presenting context is foreign to us, the question is as practical as anything else. In chapter 10, the way it's laid out, Paul kind of gets to the, the, the rub of the argument in verses 1 through 4. He lays it out for us. Then in verses 5 through 13, Paul will talk about the accessibility and the availability of salvation to all. And then finally, in verses 14 to 21, he's going to make the case that at the end of the day, unbelief is not a rational issue as much as it is a moral issue. In other words, the reason people reject the gospel has less to do because it does not make sense. The reason they they remain in unbelief is not because it does not make sense or because they have to by God's sovereign choice, but because they want to. Out of, out of an act of their own disobedience. Rejecting Christ is not a rational issue. It's actually a more a moral issue, and we'll see that in, at the end of the chapter. Well, with that, let me pray, and I'm going to read the opening verses of Romans 10, and we'll dive right into it. Would you pray with me? Father, our hearts come before you and just grateful for the opportunity to worship. <laughs> Lord, we, we need it. It is good for our souls. It is necessary for life to be together and to hear the people of God worshiping you. And that just reorients our souls in the way we need that, Father. We ask now that you would bless the teaching and preaching of your word, that we would see your amazing glory, and that we would be changed and transformed, that we would leave worshipful, thankful for the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 10, let me read you the first opening four verses. This is what Paul says. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, speaking of Israel. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Again, chapter 10 opens quite similarly to chapter 9. It opens with Paul's passion and his affection for his own people, the Jews. And we clearly see that the unbelief of the Jewish nation in light of the promises of God is not a mere intellectual puzzle for Paul to figure out. You can just hear he is emotionally involved. His mind is engaged. His heart is stirred. And, and, and just something that, as a pause to think about, this: if you struggle with questions about God, who he is, uh, what he's doing or not doing in your life, who, who he is compared to who you think he should be, uh, what the word says compared to the, your experience of life, and you're just uh, struggling with that, this is a good place to start with both your intellect and your emotions working together. 
You remember in our series on emotions we did this past summer, when we separate our intellect and our emotions, bad things result. In fact, that's exactly what we see happening here amongst the Jewish nation there in verse 2. Notice what Paul says, I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. These Jews were passionate about God, but not according to the knowledge of God. And what I love about what Paul's saying here, and I guess you could say this is a freebie because it's not the main point I'm trying to make, but Paul is challenging one of the most important or cultural axioms of our time, right? And you've heard it. It goes something like this. Uh, it doesn't matter what you believe, so long as you're sincere in what you believe. You've heard that, right? Yeah, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere about it. And that's that what I call the Disney theology, right? Just believe in belief, and that's all that matters. And Paul is actually saying that doesn't matter at all. That's not enough. And the reason, though, that phrase is so popular, and you may have heard it, is because it fits our postmodern relativistic age, right? It sounds tolerant. It sounds fair-minded. It sounds accepting. But can you imagine that, imagine a lady who loves her neighbor and sincerely brings over to her a big bouquet of flowers without realizing that her neighbor is dangerously allergic to them? You can be sincerely wrong, can't you, Right? So Paul is making a clear stab at one of the cultural axioms of our time that sincerity enough is not enough, but there needs to be knowledge tied with that. Friends, zeal without knowledge, zeal without understanding, you know, we, we, we call that fanaticism. That's what that's called. Zeal without knowledge is fanaticism. Now, on the other hand of that, other side of that, knowledge without zeal is just dry intellectualism. So zeal without knowledge is fanaticism. Knowledge without zeal is dry intellectualism. A Christian should have both zeal and knowledge, as we see Paul here. Both their mind and their heart engage on the issues that, that, that question them, that, that bother them, that they want to know about. And here's why zeal without knowledge is dangerous. We see it there in verse 3. Um, Really, the heart of verse 3 is the actual last phrase. Look at the very last phrase of verse 3. They, speaking of Israel, did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, let me talk about submission here, the word submit, because I think we might misunderstand what it's getting at. Submit here means a failure to recognize and therefore to align yourself to kind of an ordered structure, okay? A failure to recognize and therefore align yourself to an ordered structure, so, for example, um, if I do not submit to the discipline of the piano, like I don't play scales, I don't practice regularly, I will never be able to play the piano. If I do not submit to the discipline of my football coach, I don't memorize the plays, I'm calling audibles all the time, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to, I will not be a good football player. Submission in this context is talking about a failure to recognize the ordered structure and then aligning myself to live by it. So what Paul is saying here is that they failed to submit to the righteousness of God. In other words, God's righteousness was clearly laid out. This is how it works. This is how you get righteousness. Now, in the Greek text, the, there's two participle phrases that modify this last sentence that says they uh, did not submit to the righteousness of God, and they're very informative, okay? They come at the very front end, so in our English translations, we kind of have it flipped backwards just because languages work differently. 
So what are the two reasons that cause them to not submit, to fail to recognize God's ordered structure of righteousness? Here's the first reason. He says at the beginning of verse 3, they were ignorant. Now, we think of ignorance as like, oh, you're, you're just dumb or you don't know. But what's, what's at the core of the word ignorant? They ignored what God was saying. So it, they were ignorant, not because they really just couldn't understand. They just simply ignored what God was saying in his word. So the first thing that caused them to not recognize God's righteousness, they just ignored him. They just ignored God. The second one is right there, and this is the stinger. They were seeking to establish their own righteousness. You see that there? So here's how it's read, verse 3. They did not submit to God's righteousness. God was saying, this is how you get my righteousness. This is it. This is right here. And they just ignored what he had to say. And yet at the same time, they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. And there it is. Israel, like people today, all of us today, we're driven to secure our own righteousness. And that word righteousness, it can, especially if you come to a church a lot, it can kind of be glossed over as a spiritual word that means a lot in some ways, but means you don't really know what it means. So let's keep talking about righteousness. On the one hand, there's an objective reality, rightness. You are a man or woman of righteousness. You do right actions, but there's also the internal, uh, more in a psychological aspect of sensing, I have value, I have worth, I'm acceptable, I'm good enough because of these right acts. And that's what it means to be righteous. And all of us are seeking a kind of righteousness. And because we are seeking a kind of righteousness of our own and ignoring what God is saying, notice verse 4, as a result, we completely miss the righteousness, the only righteousness that's available to us as is made known in Jesus Christ. And so verses 1 through 4, Paul sets it up. Hey, I am grieved. My people are disobeying. They're, 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 they're just not getting it. But the reason they're not getting it is they've ignored God, and they're trying to get their own righteousness. And so then in verses 5 through 13, these next nine verses, Paul's what he's going to do is he's going to contrast the difficulty of us trying to get our own righteousness with the, with the ease of the accessibility and availability, availability of God's righteousness for us in verses 6 through 13. So let me read verse 5. Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. Okay, stop. That phrase, shall live by them. There are two ways to interpret it, and depending upon how you interpret it, you get the opposite intention of what Paul has, okay? So let's look at him carefully. The first way to read that or interpret that phrase, which by the way, I think the majority of people tend to read it this way, certainly Israel did, is like this. The person who does these commands, they will live by them. That is, they'll have life. They'll have life if he obeys the commands, right? You do these commands, you'll live by them. Woohoo! that's good. That's exactly the opposite of how you're supposed to interpret that. The second way to read that, that they shall live by them, as in he's now or she's now responsible to live according to all those commands if you want that kind of righteousness. In other words, if you want that kind of righteousness, well, then you're going to have to live by those rules. You see how you can read that same phrase in two very different ways. And the reason we know the first is incorrect and the second is correct is because that's exactly what Hunter read to us in Galatians chapter 3. Keep your finger in Romans. 
Flip over to Galatians chapter 3. It's just a couple books to the right. Notice what Paul says, dealing with the same issues with the Galatians. I'm actually going to pick it up in verse 10. Listen carefully to what Paul is saying, because this is the key to interpreting uh, Romans 10:5 correctly. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Why? Because it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And here it is in verse 12, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Friends, go back to Romans. There's only two ways to live. Your performance, that's, that's the way of the law, or the promise, that's the way of the gospel. That, that's what Paul's saying. There's only two ways to live, either by your own performance, by the law, or the promises of God clear in the gospel. And Israel and most people today, and even many Christians, maybe you, are living by the first. I'm going to live by the law, and I'm going to perform. Now, so Israel's righteousness, right? was obedience to the law. Be the best Jew you can be. So I'm going to be strict obedience to the dietary law, the ceremonial law, the moral law, and I am a righteous Jew. Now, nobody here had that thought this week, right? None of you are thinking about dietary laws, ceremonial laws, maybe moral laws, hopefully. So we have to read the Word of God and say, okay, that's the cultural context, but what's the principal application? We get our righteousness in very same ways, but very different. Maybe your righteousness is to be the best parent you can be, right? Provide everything your family wants and needs. Protect them from anything negative or, or could be possibly harmful. Be the perfect role model, the envy of all mothers and fathers around. Drive the right car. Take the right vacations. Have your kids dressed in the right clothes. Yes, I am good at that. Or maybe your righteousness is you, you just want to make sure you're on all the right issues of our time. You promote all the right causes. You use all the right pronouns. You have all the right bumper stickers on your cars. You, you vote for all the right candidates. You are on the right side of the issues. Maybe your righteousness is not being a, that parent or that citizen. Maybe your righteousness is having the perfect life, or at least pretending to, so you post all the right photos on social media. You're included in all the right friend groups. You get invited to all the right hangouts. You get the right amount of likes and hearts or whatever attaboys and you go girls that are on social media today, right? That, that is how you know I have value. I have meaning. I am right or a combination of all those three, or a variation, or a thousand other variations that you feel, I am right, I do the right things, I have value, I have meaning, this is my identity, I'm right. You get the point. What Romans 10.5 is saying is if, if you're going to live that way, and there are the two choices, then you have to forever abide by all those laws, and when you fail those laws, and you will, those same laws will condemn you as a failure and always remind you of your inadequacies. There's no grace when you're trying to be the perfect anything. There's no forgiveness when you fail against those gods, those ideas, those laws. It's perform or perish. 
That's what it is. Now, I want to be clear. There's a reason why that is an attractive way to live, right? It makes sense. Being a good parent is much better than being a bad parent. Contributing to the good of society is better than not. And having fulfilling relationships is a key foundation to having a meaningful life. My point is this, though, and I think this is the te- what the text is saying in application to us. If you are looking to those things for your value, your meaning, and identity, your righteousness, then you will make idols of those things. And idols always take and they never give because there's always going to be a better parent than you. There's always going to be a cause you should have supported even more truly. And there's someone always more popular than you. And if that is where your righteousness comes from, you are going to be forever chasing the receding horizon of being good enough. That's what Paul is getting at here. And you will live with pride and fear. Proud because you accomplished it. Fearful because you might lose it. And you will live on that cycle over and over and over again. But what Paul says, but the righteousness that comes by faith, the one that trusts in God's promise rather than one's performance, it's not an impossible task to get this. It's not a fear of chasing a forever receding horizon like your own righteousness. In fact, it's right here, he says. Look at what he says in verse 6 and 8. Let me read that to you. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word, excuse me, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. So Paul is quoting Moses here. And what he's quoting Moses to say from Deuteronomy is, he's saying this is what faith knows. Faith knows you can't do anything to be righteous. So so you you don't need to scale up to heaven like you're righteous and you need to get up to God because Christ already came down. You don't need to struggle to deal with your sins and die some figurative martyr's death because Jesus already literally did that and he rose again from the grave. And Paul says that righteousness is right here and it's available to you. It's right near you. That's what he's getting at in that kind of obscure passage about going up to heaven and going down. He says, faith doesn't need to do that. Christ already came down. You can't prove how good you are. Christ already came back from the grave. You can't atone for your own sins. Jesus did it all. And as a result, that righteousness is right here. But there is something important we have to do. Verse 9 and 10 tells it to us. Look at that. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. These verses do tell us that that getting that righteousness does require one important thing, and that is this, abandoning all of your own righteousness is, is, righteousness is. Friends, think about it. Think about it this way. I want us to think about self-righteousness. All of our performance-based righteousness is so we can present our merits uh, before God as a claim upon God. In other words, all of our performances are so we can present those merits as a claim upon God. It works kind of like this. I'm a good parent. I've loved my kids. I've loved my family. Implication, so you owe me a little something. I'm a good employer. 
I've taken care of all my employees. I did right by them, so it's a tit for tat. I did this, God. You owe me a little. All of our performances is so we can go before God and say, look at my righteousness. Don't I get something for this? And that's why those righteousnesses, those righteousnesses are completely wrong. John Calvin says this, the first step to obtaining the righteousness of God is to abandon your own righteousness. So the question is, how do we do that? And Paul already kind of gave us the clue there in verse 9 and 10, right? Look at verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. What's Paul getting at? Notice what he's saying. Hey, you got to profess who he is. He's Lord. He is the Lord. He is the master of your life. Not, should not be your idols to be the perfect parent, to be the perfect citizen, to be whatever. The Lord Jesus Christ is Lord. And then you notice he talks about the work of Christ raised from the dead. That's kind of theological shorthand for what Jesus did lived the perfect righteousness according to the law. I'm not sure, maybe Hunter prayed that or something, but he fulfilled the perfect law on our behalf and offered his perfection as a sacrifice and his resurrection is proof that God said, look, I accept your life and your death. And since you did no wrong, death has no claim over you. So it's this understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. But notice more of what Paul is saying here, coming full circle to the way he started this chapter. It cannot be just mere intellectual assent to these facts. It has to stir your heart. Notice what he says. You must believe in your heart. you got to have zeal and the knowledge. Because zeal without knowledge is fanaticism. Knowledge without zeal is this dry intellectualism that is not fitting for someone who will serve the Lord but zeal and knowledge, that results in worship of God. So not only is the gospel, the promise of God, easily accessible, unlike all of our own self-righteousness that we're always going to chase, but notice verses 11 through 13, it builds on this saying, if Paul's saying at first up to this point, man, God's righteousness to you is easily accessible, notice verse 11 through 13, Paul's saying, and it's equally available. Doesn't matter who you are. Look at verse, look at the words in verse 11, 12, 13. Verse 11, everyone who believes. Verse 12, no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what Paul is saying is: look, if someone, anyone, wants salvation from the Lord, all anyone needs to do is what anyone can do. Call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Friends, have you done that? Have you truly abandoned your own righteousness for the righteousness that is available in Christ? Now, you might be thinking, well, heck, I'm in church, so yes. But let me give you a practical way to find out. Now, I'm not challenging your salvation, right? I'm not challenging your salvation because you should know if you've been at this church, you, you should never say, I am saved as if the job was done, right? You can say, I have been saved because of Christ's work on the cross. I am being saved because Christ's constantly making me more like him. And I will be saved on that great day of judgment. 
It is an ongoing thing, man, past, present, future. But you can never say, oh, I am saved, the job is done, right? So I'm not challenging your salvation. But if you want a practical way to know whether or not you still rely on your own righteousness, here's how this is going to work. Every time, or the next time, someone either criticizes you or somebody gets in your way of what you want, if you feel defensive or angry, that shows you your self-righteousness. Let me explain. This just happened five minutes before service started. I was back there. I was back there and getting the presentation ready, and somebody walks by and says, did you check all your spelling errors? You have a ton in the last one. And I was like, I did not. I have spelling bee righteousness. I spell good. No, that was good. Now, I said that, and I realized immediately, I don't need to defend myself. So if I can't spell, I can't spell. That's no big deal. Now, I should do excellence unto the Lord, Right? But if I get upset because you're criticizing my spelling and my righteousness is based on the fact that I spell good, and I know that's bad grammar, I'm doing that on purpose, do you see that's my, I'm defending my righteousness. I'm circling the wagons, man. Or you're driving and your spouse, I don't know if it's husband or wife, which way it works in your family, criticizes the way you drive and you get all huffy and defensive because you're defending your, your driving righteousness. You see how that works? Yeah. Your value is, I drive well, I talk good, right? Now, should we drive well? Should we speak eloquently? Yes. As a response to God's grace to us, not as a means to promote my righteousness. So when you get criticized and you get defensive, typically what's happening is you're circling your righteousness. You're defending it. Or when you see somebody who gets in the way of something you wanted, they're, they're robbing you of your perceived righteousness. Maybe you're at the office or at school and, and you did a job and, and the team gets all the accolades and you did just as much, but for some reason, you don't get the credit. And you start getting mad. Why? Because they got to see you as competent. They got to see you as a performer, not just them. Do you see how very practical we might say, oh, Jesus is my righteousness. And then immediately, we are all full of our self-righteousness. What Paul says is, the way you get God's righteousness, you've got to abandon your own righteousnesses. The reason Israel remains in unbelief, because they chose that. Because God's salvation, his, his righteousness for them was easily accessible, and it's equally available to them Everything I've said this morning from Romans 10 comes from the Old Testament. I'm just going to show you two, past, two or three passages. The ready accessibility of Christ by faith that we read about in verse 6 through 8. Moses was talking about that in Deuteronomy 12 through 14. He wasn't talking about Christ per se, but talking about this whole dynamic of being right with God in that way. The promise of salvation to all who believe, we read in verse 11 and 13 of Romans 10. That comes from Isaiah 28, Joel 2, and so many other things. Israel had all this. But they ignored it because they were too busy trying to establish their own righteousness. So at the end of the day, someone can't say, Israel or your friend at the office or your friend at school or that other mother in your, or your mom's group or at the preschool or I mean, at the park or something. They can't say they remain in unbelief because of God's sovereign choice, but because of their ignorance. They ignored God and their disobedience. And we're going to look at that in the next passage here, the next portion here. These following eight verses in 14 to 21, back to the text. So Paul says, 
This is why, though, it's still so important to preach the gospel. And that's where that fantastic passage, Romans 10, 14, 15, about how beautiful the feet of those who preach the gospel. Well, we need to be clear here. The word for preach is the Greek word keruso, which really means a herald. You know, a herald was basically like a living newspaper or a living app that just proclaims the news. A herald was somebody who broadcast the news in the market square on the street corner. And so preaching is not just typically sermons that you think of of what I'm doing right now, but it's just being out there sharing the gospel in the street corners, in the marketplaces. And we see this reinforced in verse 15 when he says, Paul says, well, how are they to herald unless they are sent? And again, the Greek word is apostello. I don't typically quote a lot of the Greek words, but sometimes they do really matter. Apostello, where we get the word apostle. And of course, we might be thinking of the original apostles, and generally that, that is not the context here. It's more of this general idea of how Christ, through his church, sends out missionaries or preachers and believers into all the world. He may send us overseas. He may send us into pulpits. He may send us into offices, classrooms across the street. But he will send us, apostello, he will send us to herald, caruso, preach the gospel of the promises of God's righteousness available to all, accessible to all. Unfortunately for Israel, as verse 16 clearly says, they didn't obey the gospel. And so the remainder of the chapter, Paul concludes with two final questions, each showing the guilt of Israel. In verse 18, he says, well, but then did they hear? Did they hear the gospel message? To which, interesting, Paul quotes Psalm 19.4. Look at it there in verse uh, 19, excuse me, verse 18. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. That's uh, Psalm 19.4, talking about the natural creation testifies to the presence and glory of God. Paul's applying it here to the gospel. What he must be meaning is that Look, it is as clear as the natural revelation of God. The gospel has gone out. And literally in Paul's time, the church, they got after it, man. Everyone was hearing about the gospel. A lot of them didn't like it, but the gospel went out. It wasn't a matter that Israel did not hear. It is as clearly universal as the natural creation itself. And then Paul says, but, but maybe they didn't understand. And Paul says, nope, the Old Testament was too clear on this. And then in the passage, Paul goes on to quote Moses, and then later goes on to quote Isaiah. And what's very interesting, uh, Moses and Isaiah, Isaiah's the prophet. Moses represents the law, Isaiah represents the prophets. Basically, he's saying, no, they had it. The law and the prophets testified to the gospel. As a matter of fact, Jesus on the road to Damascus says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It wasn't that they didn't hear. It wasn't that they didn't understand. They heard. It's everywhere. They knew. I recently read a book. Um, I guess I'm a bit of a nerd. I have a favorite sociologist. His name's Christian Smith, and he teaches over at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I just got through reading his book, and the crux of his latest book is to basically answer the question, are modern atheists' claims actually legitimate? Now, to be clear, Smith is not a Christian. At least I cannot tell if he's a Christian at all or not. 
He's not making the case for the Christian worldview. He's not making the case that Jesus is God or that you should believe the Bible as the word of God. He's just trying to answer the question, are the claims of the new atheists, and some of them are very aggressive, are their claims legitimate? And this is what he says in the conclusion of the book. I do not wish to psychoanalyze atheists, but many years of discussions and observations have suggested to me that in many cases, if one scratches just below the surface of many allegedly scientific objections to religion, one finds not scientific problems, but instead often very practical, moral, and emotional concerns. Now listen to what he says, because this is really important. Now these may be understandable, they may be valid and compelling, but let us be clear, they are not science. In other words, what Dr. Smith is saying at the end of the day, the reason many of his colleagues in the scientific fields do not believe in religion isn't because they scientifically cannot, but it's because they personally and morally do not want to. In Paul's conclusion in chapter 10, verse 21, the unbelief of Israel is very clear. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The mystery of unbelief is not so mysterious after all. Although God extends his hands to them, they are disobedient and a contrary people. Friend, is God extending his hand to you and you are merely swatting it away? Are you saying, no, there are rational reasons. I reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, but when it comes right down to it, you still want to rely on your own performance. That you would, you're uncomfortable with the notion that there's another Lord and it's not you. Friends, I bet there is someone in your life who, like Paul, would desire nothing more for, them to, for the, you to know the righteousness of God. And as we've just read, it's easy, but it also is hard, isn't it? It's hard because we have spent our lives, and there are many of us as Christians who do the same. As I've just illustrated, we build up our righteousness and we depend on those. But what the gospel is saying is give up trying to be right, to be righteous because you simply can't. And that's the scary thing if we're being really honest. And right now, if, there, if you're not a Christian, I just kind of want to talk with you one-on-one. -on -one. Forget that there's a couple hundred people in the room. Because we cannot get our own righteousness, we actually get scared and we double down and we try even harder. The gospel says there's another way. There's another way than performing and living up to that standard. It is the promise of God in Jesus Christ. That's the promise. It's not about performance. Our performance is exhausting, and it's exhausting you. But Jesus says, and I love this, and we'll conclude with this, come to me, all you who are weary, guys. He knows to live life be bouncing behind, bouncing between pride and fear is exhausting. And Jesus says, all you who are weary, and you're heavy laden, you feel the weight. It is too much to keep playing that, to, to keep playing that game. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Stop trying to create your own righteousness 
when the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the perfect righteousness, is easily accessible and it's equally available to all by faith. If that's you, I would love to talk to you about that after the service. Let's pray. Father, we, we just come before you and your word is so, it's, it's, the message is clear, but yet the way it taps into our life, we could unpack this over and over in 10,000 ways. My prayer and the prayer of our elders here is that we would just unpack this in one way, recognizing that it is only Christ's righteousness in which we must stand. Father, help us to be a repenting church, to repent of our self-righteousnesses, the foolish, petty ways we think we are right, and revel in the righteousness of Christ that does not matter on our performance and on our, what we have or don't have, on any of those foolish things that the world lives and dies by. But it's all about what your Son has done. Help us to be a, a congregation that makes much of Christ because he is our righteousness. And we thank you in his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.